Matthew 5 and verse number 10 is where we will begin this morning. Matthew 5 and verse 10. I preached to you a couple weeks ago a sermon called Groundwork. And we started at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And then last week we talked about get your blessing. And we preached verses 1 down to 12. And I hope it was a blessing to you. I hope throughout the week you have uh, given a great effort to applying these virtues to your life. This is what Jesus expects from his disciples. And in verse number 10, today we're going to begin a sermon called Good for Nothing. Good for nothing. And you'll see it in the text today. I can think of no scarier thought than to stand before Jesus Christ one day and have him examine my life and say, it was good for nothing. Verse number 10, Jesus said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Can I pause just for a moment? If you have rewards laid up in heaven, my friend, your life is good for something. It's good for something. Verse 13, ye are the salt of the earth, but... If the salt have lost his savor, we would say flavor in modern English, but lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And then to further illustrate that point, in verse 15, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Verse 16, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If you would, let's bow our heads together. Let's ask God for help. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're asking for his sake that you would work in our hearts. Lord, we don't deserve your time and your attention, but we know by grace you offer it to us. We would love to hear from you today. Please, God, make us profitable servants, good for something. Please, Lord, make us vessels meet for the master's use. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus has given us three different illustrations, three different ways we can think of a disciple. Light, salt, and a city that is set on a hill. And I think it would be worth our time to have full sermons about each of those three things and dig deeply into them as metaphors 
And I think there's a lot we can learn about being good disciples from those things. However, today, our focus is not on those three things, but rather, what was Jesus trying to drive home? What was the point he was trying to make by using salt, light, and that city that cannot be hid? What was he trying to teach the disciples? I first want to make this very clear. And this, I I hesitate to get too deeply into it because it could become a sermon by itself. But there is a difference between someone who believes in Christ and someone who is a disciple of Christ. I've got to make that clear. For a lot of folks, those two things blur together. But I think you would agree with me, any of you that are parents here today, Just because you have a child does not mean you have an obedient child. Amen. Moms, dads, that's an amen. That's that's one of those amen moments. You can be a child of God and not be an obedient child of God. You understand, if you're obedient, then there's a blessing that comes with that. If you're a disobedient child, there's a beating that comes with that. It's called pox law. It it makes you no less a child of God. It just means you won't enjoy being one of his children at that moment. Jesus, you must recognize in this context, he is preaching to disciples that not only believe he is the Messiah, but they are already busy doing the good works that he expects from obedient believers. Obedient believers. Verse number two, I'm sorry, verse one, I just want to point it out to you. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Do you see the crowd to whom he's speaking? He is addressing these comments to his disciples. They are believers, and they are obedient to his teachings. So these people, when they sit at the foot of the mount and they hear the master say, blessed are the, they're taking notes and saying, that's what I want to be in my life. We covered that last week. But I I have purposely chosen to start at verse 10 because I want you to see a very important transition in the passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit, they that mourn the meek, hunger and thirst after righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. All of those things, they start with you. You have to do something. But, verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted. Now someone else has to do do that to you. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's in the third person. Blessed are they. Hala. Then he says, verse 11, blessed are ye, yalla. Do you you see the switch that he did? Because Jesus is aware that these people he is preaching to, they are already busy applying what he has been teaching. They are already filled with good works, and he knows because they are doing the things that he is teaching, they are going to stand out in this world. They are going to be different. If I can use a biblical word, they will be peculiar. 
The word peculiar means uh, different to what is normal or expected. So in a dark world, they will shine brightly. In a flavorless world, they will offer that savor of Christ. In, in a world that seems to always be down in the gutter, they are going to be that city set on a hill that cannot be hid, producing a standard that everybody can look up to. And Jesus knows, you disciples of mine, you're going to be hated, persecuted, reviled, mocked. People are going to make fun of you, even try to kill you in some cases, simply because you're one of my followers and you're trying to do right. This has always been the case with God's people, by the way. Whenever you recognize God's people or God's man or God's woman in the Bible, there's always that individual and then the rest of the world that they stand out from. Noah, preaching to the whole world. Daniel, they had to make up a law for him to break. Men hated him so much, they reviled him. They made up a law that he could break because they knew he would pray. David, when he fought Goliath, no one else was standing up to it. David had to be that salt, that light, that, that city that couldn't be hid. He had to take a stand. God's people have always been that way. When God called or was about to call Israel out of Egypt, you might remember there were a series of plagues. And this is one of the plagues that we as South Africans can appreciate. There was a plague of darkness. A darkness that may be felt. It was a problem back then. You'd be surprised what's in the Bible. It's all in the Bible somewhere. There was a darkness that may be felt, but the Bible says that while there was darkness in Egypt, there was light amongst the people of God. They stood out. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, Paul wrote to Titus and said that Jesus gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now, I am not preaching today that you need to purposely be weird. Some of you have that nailed without me saying a word. <laughs> Some people are just a little strange. I am not asking you today to go out of your way to embarrass yourself or do silly or goofy things, slap the name Jesus on it, and then expect it to be somehow uh, anointed of God as special. That's not the case. You know what's going to make you peculiar? This verse that I was quoting to you says, Jesus died to purify unto himself a peculiar people, comma, zealous of good works. That is what makes us stand out. This passion for doing something profitable, for actually making a difference for Jesus' sake. When I lived in Malawi, my church members there, they used to come to me every Sunday after the morning service and say, Pastor, Pastor, our ladies, they need unathons. They'd get on to me for about two years. I wouldn't give in. I kept saying, no, 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 we don't need uniforms. But all the other churches in Malawi, as far as I know, Brother Dobbins, it's the same in Zambia. Uh, every church, the ladies have a uniform. They have matching uh, outfits made, and they all have their own colors. I've even seen it in South Africa to some extent. Yes. 
And if you wear, in our case, red and white, red skirt, white shirt, and then a red bandana around the head, that's a Bible Baptist girl. And then the green was a different denomination, and on it went like that. And I explained to them, guys, our uniform is not the defining factor of our church. What should make us stand out from the rest of them is our zeal for good works. The more I thought and prayed about it, I I couldn't think of a verse that says, Thou shalt not wear church uniforms. (laughs) I found that to be part of their culture. It It does not contradict the scripture, and therefore I have no issues with it. But I took my stand for a little while just to emphasize the point that wearing a uniform or, if I might speak to a more South African thing, wearing a badge, that doesn't doesn't prove you to be a disciple of Christ. It might prove that you're a follower of that denomination, but that has nothing to do with following Jesus. Notice in verse number 16, let your light, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. I'm pointing that out so that you know the people to whom Jesus is preaching, they are already filled with good works. Folks, the Bible says in Titus chapter 3 verse 8 that we, myself as a pastor, I'm supposed to preach and remind you to maintain good works. Do we understand this idea of maintenance? To keep up with it. It shouldn't be sporadic here and there. It should be an ongoing part of your life where these good works are just happening. I want to say naturally, but consistently might be a better word. And when I speak about these good works, in our church, I commend you for this. This is not a rebuke at all. I know to whom I'm directing this message. There are several people in this church that are filled with good works. We have, we have a, a ministry called Be Warmed and Filled, wherein we pack our church bus full of resources, clothing, food, gospel tracts, New Testaments, and that bus travels through town. They went to the hospital, and they give out the food, and they give out the clothing. Come wintertime, we'll be giving out blankets, Those are good works. Several of you are very faithful to the witnessing on Saturdays and on campus. Many of you cook meals for others in the church when they are uh, having a bit of a crisis or a tough time. You make hospital visits, and the list can go on and on. I can brag on you folks. I'm confident in my boasting. I don't know, I would dare say, I don't know half of what really happens, but the half I do know Thank God for it. What a blessing to see and hear about all these good works going on. Uh, Folks, that's one of the reasons we have a local church, by the way, is to provoke one another to love and to good works. I think it would be very interesting and very worthwhile if, if maybe on a Sunday night, or wouldn't it be wonderful on a Sunday morning, if we could actually take the time and, and let people testify as to what's been going on and how they got helped. It would be awkward to stand up and talk about yourself, but it would be easy to say, this is how God helped me. You you could keep it anonymous. Wouldn't that be something to hear those stories? And there are many. For those of you maybe that have not made an effort 
at filling your life with those good works, with these things that Jesus commanded us to do, then maybe what I've just said provokes you to get busy doing some good works. Let me give you an example. What we read in Matthew 5, any of these things, meekness, mourning, comforting people, doing what's right, merciful, all of that qualifies for good works. But Jesus also said this, I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was sick and in prison, you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. Those things, listen, you don't need a PhD. You don't need to go to theology school for that. You just need to be a follower of Jesus Christ and care about others. All of those things I've mentioned, they qualify as part of the salt and the light. They make a difference. They really do. Now, I'm going to get into my sermon. Because I believe what Jesus is, is doing here is not simply saying, keep doing good works. I believe he's taking it one step further because he knows these disciples of mine, as they do these good works in my name, people are going to hate them for it. And it will become incredibly difficult to do what's right and stand for Jesus when everybody else is against it. And it is under that sort of pressure when it is incredibly difficult to do good. Jesus is not only warning them, but encouraging them, let your light shine. People will hate you anyway, but don't hide your light when the world needs to see it most. So if you look in verse number 11, blessed are ye speaking to them personally, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. I don't know if you've ever had somebody lie about you, but that's painful. That's painful. There's a very, you run a high risk of getting frustrated with what you're doing and, and instead of defending the name of Christ, you end up just defending your own name. Jesus says, listen, it's going to happen. If they, if they do it to me, they'll do it to you. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. He says, go check the Old Testament. Every single person that stood for God, they had somebody mocking them, hating them, trying to kill them. In verse 13, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. Watch this, folks. If you take a pile of salt and take a pinch of salt and put that pinch on the pile, that pinch is still what the pile is. It's still salt. The pinch of salt is good. The pile of salt is good. But that pinch of salt is not going to stand out. Now, you take a pinch of salt and put it on a very bland flavorless or disgusting insipid dish, it can really make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Myself personally, you don't have to agree with this. I think every serving of pop needs to have salt. <laughs> Jesus said salt is good. He did. It's in the gospel of Mark. Memorize that. Put it on your pop. Salt is good. You see, salt, when it is happening... When it is near other salt, it's just salt. 
Is it still good? Yes. If, if this light, if this room is filled with lights and you bring in another light, it's still light. It's not bad. We're not negating what you're doing. But I have found that some folks, they will easily serve Christ and do what's right as long as they're in an atmosphere where everyone else is doing right and it fits in. But when you're called upon to stand and be different and be peculiar, when the rest of the world is insipid and disgusting or flavorless, and you have to be that salty savor of Christ that stands out, when you walk off into a dark world or walk into a campus in a dark classroom or into a workplace where there's just spiritual darkness all around, then it matters most that you let your light so shine before men. And I believe that's the point Jesus is making. Salt is good. But salt put on other salt, well, it's not really making a difference. It's still salt. But we're looking at a specific situation where we need to add a different flavor. We need to make a difference that stands out. Darkness to light, flavorless to flavor. And it's those situations, if you fail to stand the pressure, if you give in and taste like everyone else around you, if you blend into the crowd because you're afraid of what they might say if you stand out, Jesus says, under those circumstances, you're good for nothing. You are good for nothing when it matters most. Every single one of us, we are going to be challenged at some point in our lives. We'll be in a dark place, we'll be in a flavorless place, and we're going to have to make that decision. Do I stand just me and Jesus, or do I just blend in? Will I be the salt that has lost its savor? In verse number 8, uh, forgive me, 9, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers... I find it interesting that Jesus goes from talking about peacemakers to being persecuted. That's very interesting. It's a, it's a very good balance here. We should strive to keep the peace. We should strive to be at peace with all men. The Bible commands us to do that, but not at the expense of righteousness. Because the next verse said, you're going to get persecuted for righteousness sake. And too many people compromise to keep the peace. They are peacekeepers and not peacemakers. There's a big difference. I want to have peaceful relationships with everybody around me. But there's also a time where I have to choose between pleasing God and pleasing men. And I would rather be accepted by God no matter what the world thinks of me. Peace is our goal, but never at the expense of righteousness. Years ago, I had a young man on my basketball team. If you didn't know it, I, I used to coach basketball in Malawi. I coached the Malawian national team for one season. This young man, I'll call him Jeff, he was on my college team that I coached, and he was so good, I chose him for the national team. In 2010, we had what's called the Afro Basket Tournament. We came on a bus, the entire team from Malawi. We drove, we were in the bus for over 50 hours because we had to 
sleep overnight at the Zimbabwean border, but that's another story. <laughs> we got here for the tournament and it was Malawi. We had to play against Mozambique, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia. They wouldn't let the Angolans play because they're so good. They said, you qualify automatically, let the rest of us work it out for second place. <laughs> they, they were that good. Now, Malawi has never won a game, ever, <laughs> even till now. <laughs> They've never won a game. There's a reason for that. In Malawi, we grow them short. <laughs> Malawians are very nice, wonderful people, but they're short. <laughs> we tried real hard. We were in a, a fairly close game, and because this game was close, we were actually playing the South African team you guys started to get rough and Jeff was on the court and this South African ran past him and I, I watched it happen. He ran past him and threw an elbow, bam, and hit Jeff right in the nose. And Jeff just collapsed. This happened right in, right in mid-court, half court. I thought, how? I ran to the referee on the court, disrupted the game and said, how can you not call that? That is illegal. That's not just a foul. That's like go to prison. <laughs> he, just, he just got assaulted, right? He just got assaulted in the middle of the game. Wow. Now, we pulled Jeff off to the side. We got his nose straightened out best we could. We got him cleaned up. I needed Jeff in the game. He brought a particular skill set that none of the other players had. I needed him in the game. So we had called timeout, the game was somewhat close, and I said, Jeff, I need you to go back in at this and this position, and I need you to do this and that with the ball. This is Jeff's moment. He had hit big shots for me in Malawi, playing in the collegiate games. He'd scored 20, 30 points in a game. He had dunked, he had done all the big stuff. This is his moment when the game was toughest, when the other team hated him and they were physically abusing him. I said, Jeff, I need you in the game. And Jeff grabbed the towel, put it up to his face and sat back on the bench and said, Coach, I'm not going back in. Now, this does not negate all the other points that he scored. It doesn't negate the other contributions he made when the game was going smoothly. But... I need my better players to step up and stand out and shine bright when the game is the closest, when it's at its most difficult. I needed him to be some salt and light. You know what, you know what ends up happening? The South African team, they jog past our bench and they see Jeff on the end. They know he's one of our better players and he refuses to come back in. Do you know that builds their confidence? They're saying, yep, we've gotten in their head. We've intimidated them. And Jeff's reluctance to fight that battle, if you'll let me say it that way, is now helping the enemy. Watch at the end of verse 13. What happens when salt is good for nothing? You cast it out and it is trodden under foot of men. You actually become traction. You provide traction for the lost world. They, they look at these, these followers of Christ. They profess to be disciples, but now they won't stand up when it's most difficult. And they say, hmm, 
There must not be much to Christianity. And you add traction for their argument. I don't know about you, I've never thought about lighting a candle and putting it under a bushel basket. Because it would catch fire. <laughs> In one of the other Gospels, it says put it under a bed. I've never thought about doing that because I don't want to burn in the bed, right? That, you don't put a candle under there. You do more harm than good. I'm preaching to a crowd this morning that is filled with good works. And at some particular moment in the near future, you'll get your chance. And you'll either do great good or be good for nothing. I, I'll share just a couple stories to try to encourage you. And I believe illustrate what we're being taught here by Jesus. In the year 287, it was the first time Great Britain had received persecution for Christianity. There was a preacher named Amphibolus. Amphibolus. He knocked on the door of a man named Alban, gave the gospel to Alban. Alban became a Christian. At the same time, the authorities began searching for Amphibolus because he was spreading Christianity in what was then a pagan land. They knocked on the door. Alban answered the door. He was giving room and board to Amphibolus for, uh, to, to help him as he evangelized the area. Alban answered the door and the soldiers said, We want the preacher. Where is Amphibolus? Alban knew what they were going to do. He said, I'm Amphibolus. They arrested him. It didn't take long for them to realize this is not the preacher. And for his deceit, now, while they were arresting him, Amphibolus ran out the back door and made it away safely. But they discovered that Alban had lied to them, and Alban explained the entire story as to why he would do that. And they said, number one, we're going to scourge you. So they whipped him. And number two, we'll behead you. And when they brought him to the place of execution, he's bloody from the scourging, whip marks all over his body. The executioner with the ax in his hand hears the entire story because they have to read off the charge. They hear the entire story of how Alban had gotten saved and wanted to protect his brother in Christ. The executioner laid down his ax and said, I want to say point of order. That's not what he said. <laughs> <laughs> Point of order. No, no, no. He laid down his axe and he, and he said to the other authorities, I am now a Christian. He immediately converted upon hearing that man's testimony. He said, I am a Christian and I would be honored to die in this man's place. He had a chance to shine bright. He said, if you will not let me die in his place, will you at, at least let me die alongside of him? And they said, to this we will agree. And on 22nd of June, 287, both Alban and the saved executioner went to see Jesus together. I'd, I'd like to read you just quickly one of my heroes You've heard this name if you've been in the church for a while. Mrs. Sisley Orms. Her story just fascinates me. This young martyr, age 22. How many of you are 22 or younger? Raise your hand. Would you, would you do that? 
22 or younger. Brother Dobbins, put your hand down. You know. Okay. <laughs> 22 or younger. Marianne, of course, Marianne, yes. Okay. This young martyr, age 22, was the wife of Mr. Edmund Orms, a weaver of St. Lawrence, Norwich. She wasn't a missionary. Her husband wasn't a pastor. She was just a church member. At the death of Miller and Elizabeth Cooper, these are two other martyrs that had just been explained in the book. They had been burned at the stake, by the way. At the death of Miller and Cooper, she said that she would pledge them of the same cup they drank of. That's an old English way of when Mrs. Orms saw them die, she said, I agree with what they died for. I would also pledge to that. So she's standing with them. For these words, she was brought to the chancellor, the, the, the police captain, if you will, who would have discharged her upon promising to go to church and to keep her belief to herself. We'll let you out of prison, but here's the deal. You're allowed to go to church and you cannot witness. Do not tell anyone else what, you've, what you know about the gospel. That's all she had to do is stay quiet. Don't let your light shine. That's all she had to do. As she would not consent to this, the chancellor urged that, she, that he had shown more leniency to her than any other person and was unwilling to condemn her because she was an ignorant, foolish woman. To this she replied that however, howsoever great his desire might be to spare her sinful flesh, it could not equal her inclination to surrender it up in so great a quarrel. She said, your willingness to kill me is outweighed by my willingness to die for my Savior. The chancellor then pronounced the fiery sentence. And on September 23, 1557, she was brought to the stake at 8 o'clock in the morning. After declaring her faith to the people, so before she dies, she gets to address the people and she gets to tell them why she's doing it. That's salty. That's some light shining in a very dark circumstance when, it, when you really need to shine most. After declaring her faith to the people, she laid her hand on the stake and said, Welcome, thou cross of Christ. Her hand was suited in doing this. So the black char from the stake. Her hand was suited in doing this, for it was the same stake at which Miller and Cooper were burnt, her friends. And she at first wiped it, but directly after again welcomed and embraced it. She gave it a hug, embraced it as the sweet cross of Christ. After the tormentors had kindled the fire, she said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit doth rejoice in God my Savior. Then crossing her hands upon her breast, looking upwards with the utmost serenity, she stood the fiery furnace. Her hands continued gradually to rise. Can you imagine? You can't hide it. It's a city set on a hill. You're a disciple of Christ. You have nothing to be ashamed of. The hands went higher and higher until the sinews, the muscles dried. And then they fell. She uttered no sigh of pain, 
but yielded her life, an emblem of that <coughs> celestial paradise in which the, is the presence of God, blessed forever. It might be contended that this martyr voluntarily sought her own death, as the chancellor scarcely exacted any other penance of her than to keep her belief to herself. Yet it should seem in this instance as if God had chosen her, listen, to be a shining light. For twelve months before this, she was taken and recanted. A year before, she, she was arrested and said, no, 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 I'm not a believer. She hid the light. She blended in with the crowd around her so that her salt lost the savor. As if to compensate for her former apostasy and to convince the Catholics that she meant no more to compromise for personal security, she boldly refused his friendly offer of permitting her to compromise. Her courage in such a cause deserves commendation, the cause of him who has said, Whoever is ashamed of me on earth, of such will I be ashamed in heaven. Mrs. Orms was not a, an evangelist. She was not a missionary. She's a 22-year-old wife of a weaver. And when it mattered most, she shined the brightest. Say, Brother Mike, I've, I live in South Africa. We live in a society that doesn't persecute us in such a fashion. Aren't you glad for that? Say, I'm never going to have a chance to burn that brightly, to be that salty. I, I beg to differ. I believe there's all sorts of opportunities for you to be different, to stand out in the crowd, whether it's a classroom, a workplace, or in your own home. The Bible does say in verse 14, you can give light to all that are in the house. You can shine even in your own home. Might I offer you an example? You go to Dischem and you stand in line to see the chemist at the dispensary. There's a good chance that if you're standing in that line, you're sick. Isn't that right? And you stand there for 45 minutes while the people in front of you ask one stupid question after another. And you wonder to yourself, God, why can you not part the Red Sea here and just <laughs> let me talk to Um Friki? <laughs> there is a guy named Friki that works there. That's why I say Friki. <laughs> and after 45 long minutes, you get to the counter, you get the pills you need, then you go to the checkout counter. As if it wasn't enough that you spent 45 minutes at the dispensary, you're now at the checkout till they beep, 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 nothing comes up. Beep, 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 nothing comes up. So what does she do? She tries it five more times because that will solve it. Beep, beep, beep. It's not working. Beep, beep, beep. Yeah, I, I know it's not working. Try something different. Manager, here comes the manager. Yeah, it's not working. Yes, we know that. She says, ah, wait. So she goes back to the dispensary. Oh, that's where the problem started. I'm waiting. Oh, I mean, someone's waiting at the, at the till <laughs> for another 10 minutes. And this person is obviously ill. That's why they have the pills. Now, 
Everything within that person wants to lose his patience and straighten this nonsense out by saying, get your act together. And I would have felt immediately justified because it was nonsense, but rather I thought, I mean, this person thought about Matthew chapter 5 and what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the meek. Therefore, when, when provoked, you react gently and patiently. So rather, I said, it's no problem at all. Take your time. And that, that lady, you could tell, was a little embarrassed. She said, I'm sorry, sorry. She apologized four or five times. I said, really? No big deal. God's been very patient with me. I can be patient with you. It's no problem. When I had an opportunity to let the darkness take over and to be unsavory, a little bit of light shined. That is nothing compared to Mrs. Orms. That's nothing compared to Alban, grant you. But it's... It's my chance. It's what I can do to be different from how the rest of the world would have reacted. And now, when that person reads the gospel tract, they know, hmm, this person was different. Because the other customers I faced that day did not react this way. You can be different. You can let your light shine. We have a young man that works at a mine. I have never visited a mine. I've never been to one of those sites but I have heard that they are extremely dark places, and I mean that in both the physical and metaphorical sense, that the, that the atmosphere can be very difficult. This, this young man had been trying to witness to the people on the work site. Nobody's listening. One, one man is an agnostic and been giving him trouble for quite some time, several months. One day, that agnostic came to him, and he said, I just want you to know something. I've been watching how you live and people making fun of you and you don't laugh at their dirty jokes and, and people kind of separate you from their company, but you never seem to let it get to you. You've always handled it so well. I just want you to know I'm proud to know you as a Christian. I'm proud to know a Christian that lives it. That's light shining in a dark place. Can you do that? Can you shine? Can you be that savor of Christ when it matters most? Students, tomorrow you have a chance to shine. Fulvasanas, older people, <laughs> you'll have a chance tomorrow when you go to work to actually be different, to be the disciple Christ wants you to be. Keep being salt and light even when there's other salt and light around. But when the world needs it most, that's when you need to shine the brightest. Let's all stand if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. And I want you to think on this thought. How many lives have you touched for Jesus' sake? See, I don't want to be good for nothing. Then when it matters most, you need to stand up for Christ. Good works done at a convenient time are still good works. And we're not rebuking you for that. 
Maintain that. Keep doing that. But young person, you teenagers, when it's not popular to stand for what's right, do it for Christ. Make a difference. The Bible tells us that you brought nothing into this world and it is certain that you'll carry nothing out. You came in with nothing, you go out with nothing. Listen, if you don't ever do anything for Christ, your life is good for nothing. Came in for nothing, go out with nothing. So the old saying says, there's only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You better start laying up rewards now because that's all you'll have to show for this life. I haven't preached today so much on how to be saved. I understand the audience to whom Christ was preaching. He's talking to disciples. He's challenging them to stay strong when it's difficult. If perhaps you're, you're here today and you've never been saved, we'd love to show you why we're willing to stand out and be different. We, we'd love to show you why we are willing to lay aside our reputation so that others can know Christ. Would you give us the honor of introducing you to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Please. If you've never been saved, just after the service, you can come and find me. Please don't be ashamed. Come, come. Everybody will be chatting one to another. You can privately pull me aside. I'd love to show you how you can be saved and know it. Father, thank you for the privilege today to talk to your people. And I do thank you for all the good works, Lord. There. There are a number of these folks that really are trying. And God, I'm asking today that you would encourage them and strengthen them so that when it gets darkest, they shine the brightest. Please, God, help them to maintain those good works, not only to do it when it's convenient, but to do it because it's right. Thank you for the freedom we enjoy in this country. People aren't tying us to stakes or moving around with axes. Help us to take advantage of this opportunity to preach and help people the way you taught us. Father, please take everyone home safely. Bring us back tonight. God, would you do that, please? God, put it on, put it on our hearts tonight to come ready to learn, hear more from you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.